0: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. And later in
1: the program, our exclusive interview with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, who talks about reinstilling the Air Force's warfighting culture, lessons from Ukraine, making the case for air power,
0: and more. And we parse the week's headlines in Global Air Power. If it's in the air, it's on the air here at the Air Power Podcast. Uh, indeed, we are.
1: All wings considered, as JJ likes to say, and it's all made possible <laughs> by GE Aerospace. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering first for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about its latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And check out our
0: other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, sponsored by HII and GE Marine at GE Aerospace Company, they clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our cyber report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security, hosted by my sidekick, Vago Maradian. Uh JJ, thanks uh, very much. And why don't you start us off on the news of the week? Bago this week in air power, Israel wants 25 F-15 EXs. The U.S. is proposing to sell F-16s to Turkey and F-35s to Greece. The Navy put out a request for information to buy trainer jets, and there's a surprise inside. Ministers in the Netherlands have suggested that they could make their F-16s available to Ukraine. Australia is ordering 40 UH UH-60M Blackhawks for a reason that people aren't going to like. And Kuwait is buying $370 million worth of Bikar TB2s. Bicar, of course, uh, is
1: uh, the maker of the Tower drone that gained celebrity uh, in uh, Ukraine. You know, you started off with the F-15, uh, J.J., um, you know, both of us, I think, were a little bit skeptical. You were at the Congressional Research Service at the time uh, about the notion of buying this this jet, and it's emerged in air power circles or some air power circles as being something very, very valuable. We heard from cruiser Wilsbach, the commander of Pacific Air Forces uh, at the West Coast Aerospace Forum, where he said, hey, paired with the EPOS, uh electronic warfare package, it, you know, gives it very stealth-like attributes with payload and range. How bright do you think the future Uh, of the uh, jet is. We discussed that on the Sunday podcast a little bit. And walk us through your thesis that this jet actually could be a lot more attractive, in part because of NGAD and who we are willing to
0: let be part of it or not. If the F-22 experience is any guide, the U.S. is going to keep its best air superiority fighter tight. That sets up the F-15EX as the American jet to buy if you can't get NGAD. And I do want to commend the discussion on the Sunday Business Report. Folks can find that wherever Finer podcasts are downloaded. They got into the commercial and programmatic implications of the F-15EX, and that's worth a good listen. Uh, Some of the
1: other stuff is uh, relatively straightforward uh, when it comes uh, to orders, but two worth uh, discussing. One is uh, the Australians uh, seeking a refund on the NH-90. Uh, that's sort of a big thing and unfortunately a trend. And talk to us a little bit about the uh, Navy trainer program and why it's so interesting.
0: Sure. Well, the Australian Blackhawk order is to replace the NH-90 helicopter that they've been trying to get to work and it's been a hangar queen, it's been expensive to operate and the Australians have finally given up on it. When they went to get into the return queue, however, they found that the window was already occupied by the Norwegians who ordered 14, only got eight, couldn't get the 8 NH-90s to work on a regular basis, and not only returned the helicopters, but are asking for all the money back that they put into the program. This was going to be a global program for European helicopter manufacturers, and it looks like, in practice, it's not working well at all. Talk to us
1: about the trainer and what you think is uh, most interesting about it, because it is interesting.
0: It is interesting because the Navy put out a request for information for a jet trainer to succeed the T-45 goshawk. We've been expecting that for quite some time. What we didn't necessarily expect is that the RFI would be for a land-based trainer, not one in which you're going to do carrier quals. They'll do carrier work in other ways, but this trainer is just to teach how to fly jets. That does a couple of things. One is that it greatly opens the number of existing aircraft that can compete because there's very few that, at least off the shelf, are carrier qualified. But second, back when the Air Force was having its TX competition, we said, why is Boeing drawing up a clean sheet of paper aircraft for an off-the-shelf aircraft competition. Then we saw its shoulder wing, its long landing gear, the fact that it used an engine that was already in Navy service and said, aha, they're designing a Navy trainer that is also going to be able to do the Air Force mission. This decision that they want a land-based trainer rather than a carrier-based trainer may take away some of the exclusivity that the T-7 had hoped to have. The other question is, the Navy wants a new aggressor trainer as well. And when the Air Force was faced with this, they went with two different aircraft. They realized the T-7 didn't necessarily meet the aggressor requirement. And so they have a separate competition for that. The question with the Navy is, are they going to try to make one airplane do both jobs? I, I would uh, point out that also at the time,
1: though, uh, when some of us uh, and I was there at the rollout uh, of the T seven um, was very much a Swedish approach uh, on how to make things easier to service on the jet, and it was uh, supposed to have F sixteen landing gear and therefore uh, you know appeal to the Air Force with having as many components in the existing inventory as possible. Uh, the the interesting element of this was. The goshawk had a challenging development, right? It was the Hawk trainer that was then navalized, which proved to be a bit of a challenge. Is it that the Navy wants to try to avoid that? A, B, the Navy has always sought uh, to have, you know, whether it was the Buckeye on the basic side or the TA-4 Skyhawk to have sort of an advanced, you know, know, an intermediate and advanced uh, jet capability to land on the aircraft carrier. What's lost by losing that? Because the F-35 doesn't have a trainer. So the first time you fly an F-35 is the first time you fly an F-35. So you would presumably use F-18s then for training, which is kind of an expensive
0: jet to be doing your training in. It's an expensive jet to be doing training in. The other question is, do you use simulation? Do you believe that simulation is good enough to teach the challenging task of carrier landing? And I suspect the answer to that is ultimately no. No. So we're not sure what the Navy is ultimately going to do with this yet, but they're seeking a land-based trainer. We'll see what they make of it once they
1: get it. And real quick, uh, JJ, because uh, we've got F-16 news first, the first Greenville uh, manufactured F-16 made its test flight. uh, So we congratulate the team uh, for their successful transportation of the F-16 line from Fort Worth uh, to sunny Greenville, South Carolina, Uh, but also talk to us a little bit about the importance of Uh, the Turkish order for the F-16 line. Obviously, Washington trying really hard to get uh, Turkey's support for Sweden,
0: among other things. Uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And I have to say, there was a terrific discussion of those diplomatic implications on last Friday's Washington Roundtable. Again, look for it on your podcast app. But I I think there's also a message to Turkey that's separate from the diplomatic side. Remember, in the same announcement, there was the prospect of 30 F-35s for Greece. So they're saying, maybe we'll give you F-16s, but just so you get some fighter envy, we're giving your longtime nemesis F-35s. So are you really sure you want to keep those S-400s in country? Uh, it, is, uh, it is interesting uh, to see
1: uh, real uh, you know diplomacy and uh, realpolitik working uh, in real time. And at the top of the show, you heard JJ mention uh, Dutch ministers' interest in potentially transferring their F-16s to Ukraine. We asked Secretary Kendall about America's willingness to, in the wake of the decision to transfer M1 tanks uh, to Ukraine, whether or not combat aircraft would follow. The Dutch story was breaking as we were talking to Secretary Kendall, and we're going to discuss that in greater detail on the Washington podcast tomorrow.
0: And yesterday, we met with Secretary Kendall
1: in his office at the Pentagon. Here's our conversation. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thanks so very much for joining us. We know how busy you are and uh, really appreciate you spending some time with us.
2: Uh, It's always good to talk to you, Michael. Thank you.
1: I'm going to start off uh, with, uh, you know, the last time we had uh, this kind of budgetary uncertainty, we ended up with a Budget Control Act. Uh, It looks like uh, there might be a full year continuing resolution. Uh, There are those who are making the argument we actually need to be spending more money now. Pointing to Ukraine, right? When deterrence fails, the war that results is more costly than having spent money up front. Uh, from your standpoint, where are we? And you know, if you had more money, what would you spend it on? If you had less money, where is it that you're willing to take a little more risk?
2: Well, thanks, Vago. Well, as you know, I came back into government because I was concerned about China's military modernization program. Uh, our what we call our pacing challenge. Uh, and the systems they had fielded to try to defeat our, uh, potentially at least, our ability to project power in the Western Pacific. Uh, I, I organized the work at the Department of the Air Force to address this problem around seven operational imperatives that have been articulating, you know, for over a year now. And we spent several months doing analysis. Uh, each of the operational imperatives had a team uh, addressing that specific operational problem, uh, co-led by a uh, technologist or an acquisition person and an operational person. And I brought Tim Grayson over from DARPA to uh, to coordinate all those activities and, and to kind of c- keep them all moving forward as aggressively as we could. That that work produced a lot of very, very good results. I also brought our analysis shop uh, uh, out of the air staff into the secretariat under uh, General Shotzi and, and basically recreated the Air Force studies and analysis shop and they supported a lot of the work. I'm a big believer in doing analysis to support requirements decisions. Um, All of that effort, that multi-month effort, produced a number of recommendations, uh, and associated with them were were investments. So as we've been going through the budget process since last spring, we have basically made the case to fund uh, a large fraction of those recommendations. And we can't talk about the 24 budget yet, But I feel like we're really well positioned to go to the Congress with a very strong story on the investments that we need to sustain and and, and, uh, maintain our superiority and to remain ahead of the Chinese as we move forward in a number of areas. So I feel like we're positioned well. What I'm concerned about is, as you mentioned, uh, how the Congress is going to respond this year and whether we're going to be able to get through something that's more like what we call normal order and get appropriations and authorization bills out. The, the work that we have done has produced a number of what we call new starts, new programs that we need to initiate. And under CR, I wouldn't be able to initiate those programs. So essentially, we'd be giving away a year or more of lead time to our potential adversaries. To me, that's unacceptable when we face the kind of threat that we face today.
1: What are, you know, obviously some of the classified things that China has been doing uh, you knew about when you were under Secretary of Acquisition. Uh, we've seen some of those r- revealed in terms of Chinese cislunar capability, uh, whether they're hypersonic capabilities and, and other things. What are some of the things that are most that the Chinese are doing that are most shaping how you're responding, and how you and the entire team, whether it's speed of innovation, whether it's technological progress, what are, what are some of the biggest things that are driving you and the team?
2: Well, the short version of this is that they basically, since the first call for 30 years ago, uh, have identified the key dependencies, as they would see them, of the U.S. power projection capabilities. On that list are aircraft carriers, forward air bases, and satellites, along with command and control and logistics nodes. That's a relatively finite number of targets. And they've been going after precision missiles of various types, uh, increasingly extending the range of those missiles, introducing more recently hypersonics to make uh, that a harder problem for us. And, it, and that's been the fundamental thing that has motivated me. It's the threats to uh, our satellites, our forward air bases. Uh, I'm not the aircraft carrier person. I don't worry about that problem personally. But that's one of the things they're trying to pursue. Uh, They're also fairly aggressively trying to uh, gain an advantage in things like air-to-air. And they're not being quite symmetric with us. Uh, They are fielding next-generation fighters, for example, but they're not as capable there. So they're looking at other areas like electronic warfare and advanced air-to-air missiles to give them an advantage.
0: In addition to that pacing threat, we have a hot war right now in Europe. And Russian air doctrine since the beginning of aviation has treated the air as – long-range artillery in support of the army. Are we seeing the Russians operate any differently now? Are there things that we have learned already that are making their way into training syllabuses or how the aggressors fight our own forces, for example?
2: We're watching, obviously, very carefully, and we're very actively involved in supporting the Ukrainians. Um, One of the interesting features of what's happening in Ukraine is the lack of ability of either side to gain air dominance or air superiority even. Uh, and the, the Russian Air Force has been very limited in its contributions to, to, to the fight. And the, uh, part of that is due to the way the Ukrainians have used their air defenses and how skilled they've been. Um, uh, that's a surprise. It's a surprise that the Russians weren't more prepared and couldn't take control of the air even a, almost a year into the conflict. What they are using is unmanned, uh, unmanned air vehicles uh, for strike. And they're seeing some effectiveness come out because of that. So there, when we look at this and we project forward, the, the, the entry onto the battlefield of unmanned air vehicles for missions like counter-armor, which we saw a lot of in Nagorno-Karabakh, and also uh, a deeper strike, as we're seeing more of in the Ukraine right now, are kind of presage, I think, a direction in which things are going to go much more generally in, in future fights.
0: Following up on that. The United States Air Force is deeply involved in transport, in reconnaissance, in air patrols along the borders. What does the op-tempo of the force look like today as opposed to what it was, say, in Iraq or Afghanistan?
2: It's a very different problem. Um, We we had a mission that was suppression of insurgency and and counterterrorism, basically, in those conflicts. During the ISIS fight, we had something that looked a little bit more like a conventional campaign, uh, some of the Taliban fights were that nature. There was a lot of close air support. There was a lot of things in contact. So it, it's not the same problem at all as the one that we're seeing in Ukraine. Now, our our, op, our operations now are ma- mostly in, in terms of defending NATO uh, and making sure we have good intelligence on what's going on in Ukraine itself. So we're providing support in that way. It's not stressing us from an op tempo point of view. It's it's not demanding high levels of assets or uh, obviously the conflict is continuous, so it's going on in that sense. But we're we're not strained by that by the missions that we have right now.
1: Um, Let me uh, ask you, what are some of the you know you and I talked a little bit uh, at the Reagan Forum you know, every day is an opportunity to learn new lessons uh, in terms of the discipline process you guys are internally using. What are some of the important lessons you're learning to better prepare you for China? Because in certain cases, you know, speed of innovation, satellite communications, you know, you mentioned unmanned and how they're using it. What are some of the other lessons that are better preparing you for the other challenge?
2: I think there are lessons more generally, uh, some from the Ukraine conflict, certainly. But uh, the key challenge for us right now, uh, I think, is to, how to, is to understand how to optimize the investment of our modernization funds. There are a lot of emerging technologies, some coming, many coming out of the commercial world, uh, others that have more, more uniquely military applications like hypersonics you mentioned. Um, we have to understand how to take those technologies and apply them operationally as efficiently as possible advantage on a battlefield is largely about efficiency. It's about you know, cost exchange ratios and so on, right? Particularly when you talk about modern uh, uh, competitors in a great power context, if you will, like the United States and either Russia or China. So we're taking what we're seeing, but we're also doing a great deal of analytical work. My Cold War background included a lot of uh, work on operations research systems analysis. And that's a it's a discipline that atrophied to a large extent following the Cold War, and one of the reasons I brought my studies and analysis shop into the Secretariat uh, so I could supervise it personally was so that I could apply it effectively to both the Space Force and the Air Force, and, and use that analytical capability, which is quite good by the way, uh, to to help answer some of these operational questions and understand the best ways to apply technology.
0: We're recording this conversation on January 25th, and it's just been announced that we are sending M1 main battle tanks, along with leopards from our allies, over to Ukraine. We've also sent advanced anti-armor weaponry. We've sent air defense systems. At what point do combat aircraft get
2: involved in that mix? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that question at the beginning. I thought you were going somewhere else. Uh, I've been asked this question before. Um, the, there was a the significant lead time to getting combat aircraft fighters, basically, uh, into the hands of Ukrainians, training them, preparing them. Uh, that has not been something that we saw as uh, a, consistent with the time frames in which we were planning operations. Um, or or necessarily an efficient way to use resources to support the Ukrainians so far. At some point, the Ukrainians will wanna reconstitute an air force which will not be using Soviet or Russian equipment. So we will at some point be talking to the Ukrainians about you know, uh, reconstituting their, their, their indigenous air force. Uh, it's not something that's getting an enormous amount of attention right now. We have higher priorities at the moment.
1: Um, l- let me take you uh, to a munitions uh, question. Uh, this war has underscored the need for people, equipment, munitions in volume when the shooting starts, something that your generation in the Cold War uh, understood, and we have a cultural question I'd like to, we'd like to ask a little bit later. We had excess industrial capacity until about 2010, coinciding with the Budget Control Act, where we started to shed uh, that spare industrial capacity, and we lost a lot of workforce at the time as well. Now we're having to stand up capability, but companies are reluctant to invest. They feel that there'll be a burst, short burst of orders and then years of not a lot of work and, and overhead they'll have to carry. Uh, you're investing in hypersonic programs, but there's a sense we don't have enough JASM-ERs or l the long-range anti-ship missile. From your standpoint, what's the right way to incentivize the industry, get them flowing, building the stuff you need for the immediate, the midterm, while also then preparing for the future? What's the right strategic plan for that?
2: Well, Vago, the way to incentivize industry is always the same. <laughs> industry responds to uh, you know to, to customers who have money to, to spend on things. And I think what we do have to do is take a hard look at uh, our investments in capacity. What kind of production capacity do you want to have? We We have a History and since the Cold War in particular, of investing to uh, capacity which we tend to sustain over time uh, in a peacetime model. It's not a wartime reserve capacity model. So I think we need to take a hard look at that again. Uh, not too long ago, over a year now, I guess, I briefed the House Committee on. Uh, supply chain and my message to them was you need to think about wartime requirements more and the kind of war where you have sustained operations over a period of time and you're consuming inventory uh, and there is a lead time with all of this equipment and you can't do very much about that even if you have the capacity it takes a while to get things built and through the whole supply chain so we need to be much more conscious of that in our planning Uh, we cannot afford to uh, capitalize the defense department entirely for a long war. You have to mobilize the country to do that, basically. But we can hedge and uh, manage the risk that we have, particularly for certain types of munitions. And we can buy additional capacity in key areas where it's important. We, we ran into this problem uh, when we were in the ISIS fight, which went on for quite some time, and consumed some of our weapons, specific weapons, uh, and we were working really hard with industry in those days to to increase their capacity, to expand what they could do for us. So there's some lessons learned more recently from that as well. Um, it's getting a fair amount of attention. I, I, I mentioned my operational imperatives. I also have a, what I call a cross-cutting operational enabler right now. There are three of them, but uh, one of them is munitions. And looking at our our, our, our suite of munitions and what's going to be needed in the future, what opportunities are there, but also looking at what we need to do to invest in uh, the capacity and the stockage, the war reserves and so on, that we'd want to have on hand for a possible future conflict.
1: Um, let me ask a, a quick follow-up to that. There is a concern, for example, we're not building enough L-RASMs, right? I mean, we'll have 400-some-odd by 2026, and almost every war game, we run out of them. We run out of JASM-ERs, and those are the most important things we have because we have a lot of short-range fighters. Do we need to be doing more to sort of bulk up on those sort of systems as we wait for a new generation of hypersonic strike systems to come online?
2: We're emphasizing both of the systems that you mentioned and acquiring more inventory there. Um, We'll have some, I can't talk about the 24 budget at this point in time, but those are things we're getting a lot of attention as we build the 24 budget. Uh, But we do need some uh, 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 more cost-effective more, more, less expensive and more effective, both 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 dimensions there, uh, capabilities than we currently have. That's why I'm uh, uh, focusing on munitions as a critical cross-cutting operational enabler.
0: Understanding that we can't talk about the 24 budget, here's a question that is relevant to the 24 budget. Every year for decades, the Air Force has been handed two pots of funds, one that you get to spend and the other that you have to turn around and give to other agencies and not touch, yet it counts against the Air Force's top line. Several of the committees on the Hill have indicated a willingness to get away from that system and change how the accounting is done. What's the current hang up in getting rid of this pass through funding, which this year is one and a half times the size of the entire Space Force budget?
2: I get that question quite a bit. Uh, It's not one that keeps me up at night because the people who are on our committees understand that that money is there, that it doesn't go to the Air Force, that it's used for other purposes. Um, It it would make it easier to communicate where we are to some people particularly uh, if that were not included in the Air Force's budget, and I'd be open to moving it if the Congress chose to do that. Um, but I, I I don't find that it impairs me. I don't find that my in my conversations about resources for the Department of the Air Force, both internally and and with the Congress, i I feel that we can paint a clear picture of the capability we're buying uh and what we're not buying uh, with the resources that were allocated. So it's not something that I think from my direct experience, creates an enormous amount of confusion and makes people believe the Air Force has too much money. It's not having that effect. Or if it was, I'd be much more concerned about it. Um,
1: let me ask you uh, about making the case for air power. Um, the United States Air Force, uh, in its uh, whether uh, Air Force uh, hat or Space Force hat, uh, is absolutely critical to almost uh, every facet of American warfighting. We can't detect, track, navigate, Move or or strike uh, without it, and yet there seems to you know even though the case seems to be pretty self-evident, that's not reflected on the kind of funding the Air Force tends to get. Uh, when you talk to folks up on the Hill about the Indo Pacific, uh, they sort of the Navy's vision of its centrality in that conflict is folks say, well, that's a naval theater, instead of saying it's as much of an air theater, uh, ultimately. Uh, when Army and Navy chiefs, for example, testify, they have a tendency of having, uh, you know, advocating their centrality in, in those. Whereas when the Air Force makes the case, it tends to make the case of its capabilities in sort of a broader joint construct. Do you think the Air Force can, should, be doing a better job in how it tells its story, so that it's reflected in, in funding. For example, the Navy had more budget uh, this year and a bigger budget increase, uh, even though it's you know built three dozen warships. It plans to decommission, right? Raising questions on the part of some.
2: Well, I'm not going to get into the Navy side of things, but I'll be happy to talk about the Air Force and Space Force side of things. Um, the the uh, all of us face threats with the uh, uh, serious threats from a China's military modernization program. I mentioned that at the beginning of the interview and the targets that they're going after. Um, I thought you had a pretty good list of the things that we do both from space and from the air and how critical they are to the joint force. The Pacific is a space, air, and maritime theater primarily. There are you know, land elements of it as well and certainly subsea as well as surface sea uh, elements of it. But uh, the Air Force basically operates from unsinkable aircraft carriers, uh, but they're very targetable. So we need to protect those, those airfields, and we need to create additional airfields that we can operate from to have the survivability that we need to be effective. But we're going to be there. We're already there. Uh, we don't need to take a period of time to, 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 to move into theater, and we can fly additional assets in very quickly. The Space Force is already there on orbit, uh, and it can provide critical functions that enable the joint force, and also uh, through counter space capabilities, the capability to protect the Joint Force from targeting from space. So when we look at the the story or the case, if you will, for assets for the Air Force and the Space Force, I'm very comfortable that we can make that case. Uh, One of the things I've done over the past year was to take a threat briefing around the Hill and explain the different uh, threats that the Air Force in particular faces and talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing about them. This year, I'm going to have a much more fulsome story, but it'll be based around the work that we did on operational imperatives, uh, and it'll lay out the investments we need to make in each of those critical areas. So I'm, I'm very comfortable at this point with both the resources that I expect to have when I go up there for 24, and with the story I'll be able to tell about how we're going to apply those, those resources to ensure the United States remains the dominant military power on the planet and in the Western Pacific.
0: The Air Force is terrific at air superiority, and that evolved into air dominance. We're hearing a lot more now about air denial, perhaps in part coming out of the conflict in Ukraine. That is more than just an Air Force mission. But what does it mean for the Air Force operationally, budgetarily, and is it being taken seriously as a concept within the service?
2: Um I don't know that I'm using that terminology directly. Um, We're interested in control of the air uh, in support of the Joint Force. We're interested in the ability to uh, operate in a way which allows us to do uh, strike operations uh, to pursue campaigns that way. Um, I've been focusing on counter-maritime capability because some of the problems that we have to solve uh, involve maritime targets to a very large extent. So we're, we're... basically i'm I'm interested in the, the the stressing operational scenarios that we might face and ensuring that we have the capability to be successful in those scenarios and The operational imperative work has all been built around the analysis of those scenarios largely in the Pacific but also potentially in europe
1: um, I, you know there were a couple of things you said uh, that I would like to follow up on one is a, a Ukraine lesson that goes into vulnerability of supply lines, right? We will have a massive logistical challenge uh, in the Pacific. Uh, And the Ukrainians are doing a very job using some American weapons that have been supplied to systemically target uh, Russian supply trains, uh, complicating operations, right? Which is something that we would do by striking very deep in Russia, uh, for example, uh, in, in a war. What are some of the lessons you're learning about how you would be able to sustain operations? We hear a lot about agile combat employment. But if you look at the speed with which things can be struck, how are you adjusting how you think about this and how you think about what logistics looks like, given that if you can see it, you're going to be able to strike it pretty quickly?
2: Yeah, one of the cross-cutting operational enablers we're working on now is mobility. And one of the original operational imperatives was all the things we depend upon to go to war, including the logistics chain, if you will, that, that supports us as a whole supply chain. Uh, these are things that our adversaries can, can understand uh, our potential dependencies that they could attack. Um, the Agile Combat Employment concept depends on the ability to do uh, logistics from multiple airfields in a very flexible manner so that the adversary doesn't know where you're going to be operating from and uh, c- can target forces you know, intelligently. You want to confuse them as much as possible. You also want defenses, uh, both passive uh, hardening-type defenses as well as active defenses that are associated with the force as you deploy it and move it around. Um, All of this requires some modernization of our logistics systems and a lot of agility and flexibility that isn't built in right now necessarily. So that's why we're looking at all those things. We're trying to look at everything that contributes to your ability to achieve success operationally. Administration
1: is getting a lot of credit for helping Ukraine, thereby sending a deterrent signal to the Chinese. But there are those who worry that the Air Force plan to divest in order to invest, get rid of a thousand jets over the coming years, uh, is a vulnerability and is a risk. How do you respond to those people who say that that's a big mistake?
2: Uh, Obsolete systems uh, that are retained don't really improve your capability. Systems that are not relevant to the fight that you might be in, that you retain, don't improve your relative capability. But they do consume resources that you need for modernization and for recapitalization. I I really want to applaud the support I've had from the Congress over the last two years. Uh, With one exception, I think, in both of the last two years, we've been able to divest things that we requested. Uh, The only exception this past year was uh, some of our older F-22s that are less combat capable. We have retired some of the A-10s now. We've been given authorization to do that. And I think that's a step in the right direction. It was a difficult hurdle to get over. So I really appreciate the support we've had. I think we'll have a strong case. One of the things we're trying to do, and in many cases this is about you know, sustaining, uh, you know, basing in different states and constituencies. I understand that. So we're working with places where we, we want to... Uh, Reduce force structure, uh, flying force structure, with replacement missions where we can, maybe flying, maybe not, but so we have as minimum impact on the states that, that are affected as possible. You know that's a political reality that we have to deal with and we take account of. But I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the support we've had. and I think we'll have a very strong story to, to tell about what we want to do going forward.
1: Um, you are uh, from a great power generation. You graduated West Point in 1971. Vietnam War and the Cold War were very fresh. World War II leaders uh, were in place. Uh, what are some of the lessons you're re-inculcating in the force on how to get into a mindset where squadrons could be lost in a day, air, many air bases could be lost in a single day? How are you changing, you and the chief and the leadership team working to change culture?
2: That's a great question. It, it applies throughout our, our enterprise. Uh, a lot of it is about training. Uh, how, we, how we train people from the day they walk in. People are, I just looked at a, a, a video that people are shown as they come into the services on uh, the Chinese threat and what the con- Chinese threat constitutes like. We have got to get to a mindset where we expect our bases to be attacked, where we have to operate under fire, basically, uh, where people have to be aware that uh, members of their unit can be killed that multi-capable airmen are necessary because the other airmen who do the other jobs may not be there still, they may be casualties. So throughout the force, we've got to change the mindset about what what fighting and operating for the Air Force in particular is like. On the Space Force side, we've got to go from a a service that essentially has had decades of operating in peacetime mode and has never had a conflict mode of operation of any type. Uh, So that's a major change there. Uh, it, and it's a major cultural change as well. On the, on the More on the bureaucratic headquarters, planning, staffing side of the house, I've had everybody in the headquarters put a sticker on their computer that says, war with China or possibly Russia could happen at any time. Uh, people must develop a sense of urgency about the things we're doing. And that gives me a chance to talk about CRs. <laughs> the operational imperatives will, uh, work has produced a number of new starts, about a dozen. You can expect something like that to be in our budget. We must get those programs started. If we have a year-long CR, we are giving away a year to the Chinese, giving it away for no good reason. So I really want to call upon the Congress to respond to our budget. We'll answer any questions they have. We're happy to interact, but we need appropriations and we need authorization so we can do our work.
1: You, you mentioned budgetarily, right, the holistic importance of um, a whole series of new starts. You've got NGAD, B-21, uh, collaborative combat aircraft you're working, a whole series of unmanned uh, systems. Now a little bit of a talk of stealth, uh, whether we'll need stealth transports or, or stealth tankers. What's sort of the architectural way that people should be thinking about what the United States Air Force is doing and why all of these pieces are critically important to all come together at once. What's sort of the broader story as you make that case for people to, to invest? What's sort of the underlying case for the architecture the nation is investing in?
2: Both the Air Force and the Space Force are in the early stages of a transformation to a new generation of capabilities. Uh, what we're doing is starting down the road to fielding a set of capabilities that's going to keep us ahead of our adversaries. We are back in a race for military technological superiority with a formidable opponent, and we cannot be complacent about our our current capabilities. We have got to get to the next generation. That's what obsesses me more than anything else. That's what I'm spending my time on and trying to accomplish.
0: We've talked about bureaucracy, budgeting, the Congress, operations. What subject makes you look in the mirror every morning and say, remember, you wanted this job?
2: Uh, I, in general, I'm going to say the inertia in the system of various types in various places that um, trying to make progress in in the Pentagon and in the federal government, you encounter a lot of resistance to change. Um, it comes in various forms in various places. Uh, it can get frustrating. Uh, you have to be patient and you have to be tenacious. Uh, and you have to remind yourself every now and then about why you're doing this <laughs> because it, it is of critical importance to the nation uh, we cannot afford failure and so that, that, that gets me going and the other thing is I think about the people I'm working with and how fantastic they are and what a great team we have uh, and how proud I am to be part of that team. Uh, as I go around, I, I, I travel around Fairmont and talk to airmen and guardians all over the, all over the planet. And uh, they're out there doing their jobs. They're out there working really hard to make sure the U.S. is the dominant power on the planet. And I'm, I'm proud to be able to support those people. They're great people.
0: Mr. Secretary, thanks very much. An honor and pleasure. And thanks so much to you, our listeners, for joining us on the Air Power Podcast and to GE Aerospace for sponsoring us. We'll be back next week.